Welcome to the Art Stories Podcast. So there I was, standing in front of a group of strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos. A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out and she like smiles at All-American Nashville smile and she, she introduces herself, she shakes my hand, hey, I'm Taylor. Hey, I'm the groom. We're bringing you true personal stories told in the Southern tradition and recorded in front of a live audience. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. I'm your host, Chris Kinsley. Every good story involves conflict. It's what drives the narrative action. In fact, you could say that conflict is what makes a story a story. Sure, you need structure and details and characters and setting and everything like that, but you can have every element of a story in place. But without conflict, it's going to inevitably fall flat. Conflict is so essential that the higher the stakes involved in the conflict, then the better the story is going to be. Well, we recently decided to celebrate this narrative truth by creating an event centered around it. We hosted this event just this past Saturday where our theme was Fight or Flight, Stories About Conflict. So today we're bringing you two stories from that event where each of our tellers had to choose whether to flee or to stand their ground when faced with adversity of different kinds. This first one is from storyteller Olive Anena. Muchwini Kitkum. Muchwini is my home. I grew up with my grandparents. I grew up with my grandparents because my parents had religious differences. My mother was a Christian and my father was a Muslim. And therefore, my parents could not stay together. My grandparents picked me and brought me to their home. We lived in a homestead. When I say homestead, It's a home comprised of five huts that were shaped in the form of an ark. And right in the middle was the fireplace. And the fireplace is a hole that is dug in the ground. And I used grass and firewood to make what I referred to as the fireplace. I lived with my grandparents and seven other cousins. So we were about 10 that lived in the home. I remember every evening, I would get all the mats and put them around the fireplace. See, our homestead was shaped in an arc, and if you stood at any of the doors, you could see anybody that is coming in and out of the homestead. Now, surrounding our home were trees, different kinds of trees. My favorite was the guava tree. And we also had over 100 acres of land that was surrounding the homestead. We grew everything that we ate. I remember as I placed all these papyrus mats around the fireplace and excitedly waiting for my friends from the neighboring homes to come and just listen to my grandfather share from scripture and also tell us different traditional stories. It was exciting. 
I remember some evenings, my grandmother and my grandfather would break out in song, and all the girls would stand up and start dancing. And we would dance around the fireplace. And we could watch as the dust would raise from the ground, up and down, up and down, just mimicking the movement of our feet. And I remember our legs would be so dusty, but I didn't care because I enjoyed dancing and singing. I remember after doing that, it was time to eat. And that was the time that my grandfather would start to pray in Acholi. And the one prayer that he consistently always said was the Lord's Prayer. Acholi is my native language, the first language I learned as a child. It is my mother tongue. And I remember this evening, my grandfather was praying the Lord's Prayer, and before we opened our eyes to try and eat the food, we were surrounded. Now, we were surrounded by cattle raiders. The cattle raiders came and they took all our cows, our goats, our sheep, our chicken, and anything that they could carry with them. I was very scared. I was devastated. I didn't really know what was next. And I recall the next week, there was an activity that was going on in the neighboring village where children were being abducted. The children were being abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army, led by Joseph Kony. They abducted children to train them to become child soldiers. When they abducted children, they would take them so far away to the border of Sudan and Uganda, in the mountains. So it was very hard to come back. At that time, at the age of five, I was just imagining what could happen to the girls. The girls became wives to the older soldiers. The younger soldiers, they went and captured more children. Now they began coming into the home and capturing children and killing the adults. There are several families that began hiding within our home. I remember this evening, we were about 70 of us hiding in my grandmother's hut. My grandmother was sitting with her back, propping the door open, and as I sat by her feet, my grandfather was at the fireplace, just looking and praying for protection of ours. Be within minutes, five rebels approached our home. They talked to my grandfather briefly at the fireplace, and then two of them began walking straight at us. One of them got to the door and held on the hinge of the door, and then the other one looked at me straight to my eyes. I was afraid. I began crying because I knew it was over. I wanted to get out of that hut and run out, but I could not because I did not want to risk the lives of those that were hiding in the hut. I remember just feeling so terrified that my heart was beating so fast, I felt like it was beating outside of my body. Within seconds, the two looked at each other, and then they turned their back to us, 
And then they talked to my grandfather and they told him that, you're telling the truth, there is no one. Now a lot of changes began happening now because the rebels would come into the home and they'd burn everything down. My grandmother would give me instructions. Olive, pick up your blanket and go hide so you're not captured like the other children. The first time that happened, I cried. I was afraid of the dark. I did not want to hide by myself. But it was important that I went and hid because I did not want to be captured. Got my blanket. I would go hide in the forest and come back in the morning. The mornings were the hardest. The mornings were hard because that is when we began waiting for everyone to come back. And thankfully, everyone would come back in the morning. I remember a lot of changes began happening now because the rebels began burning everything to the ground. There was really nothing left for us to hide. We began walking with all the other families in one single line, just heading to an unknown destination. The only thing that I had was a blanket that I owned and the dress that I wore for days. I remember my grandfather. He looked at me and realized that I had transformed. I had changed from that cheerful five-year-old that loved dancing around the fireplace to a fearful, lonely, quiet, helpless, hopeless, traumatized six-year-old. My grandfather told me, you have to go to the captor city. With that, he put me on a bus, and I traveled on the bus to the captor city to be with my mother. As I got to the bus station in Kampala, that was a totally different experience for me too because I had never gone to school. I only knew a choli. I only had one dress that I had worn for days and months. I was very traumatized. As I sat on my seat, I began looking around. There was so much going on around me. There were merchants everywhere, some of them holding the items they were selling. Then there were some boxes on the side of the road with merchandise. And everyone was trying to sell their stuff at the same time. It was very hard to hear. I began looking out to see if my mother was among the crowd. I got out of my seat and walked towards the exit. Then I saw her. She was about 20 feet away from the bus. And there she was, just standing with another girl right next to her. I smiled at my mother. I was happy. There was my hero. My mother was my hero. But she did not smile back. She looked pale. Just looked like she was struggling with something. And she asked me how I was doing. I told her I was doing okay. And we walked quietly to the home where she stayed. She lived in a three-bedroom home, a three-room home, one bedroom. And she stayed in the one bedroom. Now, there was something going on within my home 
I didn't really understand what was going on, but I had a lot of questions that I was scared to ask. My older sister, she would uh, hear my mother call. As soon as my mother called, she would wear gloves, and then she would go inside my mother's room, and when she came out, she would take the gloves off and throw it in the trash. You can only imagine what I was going through. I wanted to know what was going on in that room and why wasn't my mother coming out of her room. My mother woke up one Saturday. When she woke up, she told me, get ready, I'm taking you somewhere. Meanwhile, in my mind, at seven years old, I did not believe anyone could do anything good for me because of all the trauma that I was going through. I didn't believe anybody could save me, leave alone provide peace, or even love me. I remember walking and getting to this church, Kampala Baptist Church, and I remember having my very first picture taken. See, when I got to that church, I saw these children smiling and laughing. That was a glimmer of hope for me. But again, I didn't really believe that it was going to last because nothing lasted in my life. Everything seemed to wither away. I remember meeting Carol and Stephen. They're from Uganda as well. And they went to the church and they worked for this nonprofit called Compassion International. And all the other children called them Auntie Carol and Uncle Stephen. I did not know that Uncle Stephen and Auntie Carol were going to be very instrumental in helping me recover. I remember also, after a couple of months, I received this letter from a family that resided in Australia, Maria and Hans. And they wrote to me telling me that they were going to fight my journey with me. You see, even if I had this support system, I still didn't believe that there was hope. I still believed that it was going to fade away but nothing ever lasted. You can only imagine what I was going through because the questions of my mother, my hero, going through this pain and watching her diminish before my eyes. And yet, I could not ask anybody these questions. My mother started getting really sick. She became very skinny and uh, very thin and all the bones were sticking out of her body. She began losing hair. And I remember one Saturday morning, she called me and told me to go and get for her fruits. She barely ate, she had lost her appetite. I remember when she asked for the fruits, I rushed to the market. And on my way back, my older sister just sprinted towards me and gave me a big hug and whispered in my ears, Mommy's gone. I did not believe her. I dashed to her room, opened the door. 
She was laying down on her bed like she normally does. I held her hand. I began calling her name, Mama. Wake up, Mama. She didn't wake up. My mother was struggling with HIV AIDS and it killed her. I was mad. I was devastated. It almost felt like someone had pulled the mat from my feet and I was just floating in the abyss of hopelessness. Ten years after that, I was in high school. Aunt Carol and Uncle Stephen, they came to school because I wasn't feeling well. They took me to the hospital and they did several tests. And they found out I had contracted pulmonary tuberculosis and I had to spend one year in the hospital. My left lung was almost completely destroyed and I had to stay in that hospital and get the treatment that I needed. And Kara emotionally met my need. She was there to ask me every time, how are you? How are you doing? I also remember Uncle Stephen. Uncle Stephen would buy food and bring it. And he would buy me clothes using the money that my sponsors from Australia would send. And I also remember that the time that my sponsors at the age of seven told me in the very first letter that they wrote that they were going to fight my journey with me, it became true because after the, ten, after the one year in the hospital getting the treatment, they didn't leave me. They were there with me. They encouraged me. They believed in me. It was retested and I was okay. I went back to high school and um, I picked up the sport of volleyball. I was later recruited to play at South Carolina State for four years. And then I went on to earn two master's degrees from the University of Georgia in social work and public health. You see, when I look back at my journey, there were several moments where I could have just chose the flight route, but I chose the fight route. I could not do it alone. There were people, Auntie Carol, Uncle Stephen, my sisters, my church family, my compassion sponsors, Maria and Hans. They were there. But I'm also reminded of the beautiful memories at the fireplace as a child, just dancing, and most importantly, remembering the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that contains a very fiber that knits my family together. I have a seven-year-old. His name is Felix. And I just cannot imagine my son, who is seven, going through what I went through at that age. And he's not able to comprehend what I went through. But there are some things within my family that has not changed. 
and that is always saying the Lord's Prayer each night before he goes to sleep. Kilega Pawanwa, Wanomati Polo, Nyu Bed Maling, Ke Merubin, Gin my Mirokiti Bilobo, Machalo Kiti Bipolo, Mewatin Cham Mewatin, Gon Balmewa, Machalo Wano Gonjumabalo Botwa, Petewa Niomachuin, and Toilawa Botaraj, PNK, Kidit, Kideo, Ubed Mary, Ninamapotum. Amen. Thank you. Ala Beneno is a mother and social worker living in Georgia. You can check her out on Instagram at Olive Sonia. If you want to know more about the work of Compassion International, you can find them at their website, Compassion.com. In our next story, our teller moves to a new place and a new town, but soon finds her home invaded by some guests who definitely make her feel unwelcome. Here's storyteller Meredith McClendon. you, but for me, sometimes I feel like life arrogantly strolls up to me with glove in hand and sort of slaps me across the face, challenging me to a duel. Now, I'm going to have one or two responses when that happens, either run or the stubborn redhead in me is going to rise up. Stubborn redhead, who also, by the way, is a youngest child, so I pretty much hate being told what I can't do. But every time I take on a challenge, somewhere in the back of my mind, there's also this nagging feeling that this challenge might be the one to unearth my kryptonite. It's sort of like I'm meticulously building this house of cards in a room that I discover has an oscillating fan. (laughs) And I'm just waiting, right? So a number of years ago when life issued this challenge to me for a new career, The career was part of the challenge, but honestly, the bigger part of the challenge was actually the context of the career, because I was offered a job at a college, which I was very excited about, but the college was out in the middle of nowhere. Now, I'm not going to tell you the name of the town to protect the podunk, but (laughs) let me describe it to you, okay? This is a town of about 3,000 people. You could not get good food in this town. Uh, In fact, not only were there not good restaurants or fast food places, but even the grocery store, they did really quirky things like they sold those little spice packets you can use to make guacamole, but they didn't sell avocados. (laughs) There was that small town thing where everybody knew everybody and the FedEx and UPS guy would bring packages to wherever you were. (laughs) Not just the address on the package, wherever they knew you'd be. All right, so that's just small town, I get it. I can live with all that, right? But the job itself did have some challenges and quirks. In fact, my first day on the job, I found out that I had not been hired as the campus minister, I'd been hired as the interim campus minister. This was news to me. Because as it turns out, they'd never hired anyone for that position who did not already have a seminary degree, and at the time, I didn't. So my employer on day one is pretty much telling me, uh, we don't really think you can do this job, so we're giving ourselves an out. 
well, stubborn redhead, rise up, right? I will do this job. So there were, there were also some other challenges. The job was part-time, so it meant I had to keep juggling other jobs. I was commuting back and forth to Birmingham. I, I, was, I was trying to make this work, you know, despite the challenges, despite the old money in town that was always looking down their nose at anyone that wasn't born there, despite the, the men on staff at the campus who looked down on me just because I was a woman. Just constant challenges, right? But all in all, I felt like I was taking all that stuff in stride. I was getting a good rhythm. I was finding some success in the job. In fact, after one semester, they offered to drop the interim title and make me full-time if I was willing to move out to Nowheresville and live there. So I felt like, you know, this is a victory. I'm, I'm up for that challenge. And so I pack up all my stuff in the big city of Birmingham and me and my cat, Chap, head on out to Nowheresville, right? I find this great house to live in. It's this old cottage built in 1854, hardwood floors and fireplace in every room. It was amazing. And I even, I even started seminary because clearly that was important to the school. So I wanted to demonstrate that I was making efforts for them. And so I had actually gone to the seminary, which was in another state, and was doing this one-week intensive class. And the last day of class, I get a call from my sister in Atlanta to tell me that her house is burning to the ground. And she's devastated. And I'm the closest relative, so I get permission to leave the class early, and I head to Atlanta to check in on her and support her and encourage her a little bit. And then I headed on back home. And so by the time I get home, it's 11.45 at night. I'm unpacking. I'm on the phone with my friend Sarah, and I'm, I'm just processing the week, you know, and all that's happened. And I hear this noise. Now, my cat, Chap, I'd had her a number of years by this point, and so, you know, we had a rhythm. We kind of knew each other's routines. She played with certain toys, and I knew how those sounded. Um, but she's doing something that doesn't sound familiar. So I'm still on the phone, and I walk out into the foyer of, of my cottage, and, and I look to see what she's doing, and she's got something cornered. I know, right? So I, I give it a second till she moves out of the way, and I see she's got this bird cornered over there. And I, you know, I tell Sarah, I'm like, oh, gosh, a bird's gotten in my house. This is crazy. i, I got to go get a broom or something try to shoo it out the door. And as I start to do that, the bird flies away from my cat and lands on the doorframe going into the living room. And as he does that, I, I notice something curious. He's not perched normally like a bird. He's kind of hanging there, <laughs> upside down. And then he stretches out his wings to, to reveal the very distinct shape of bat wings. Now, in an instant, I go from being sort of entertained by this little challenge of getting a bird out of my house to full freakout mode because the spawn of Satan is in my house right now. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I'm trying to be the strong, independent woman, but I'm terrified right now. You know, and I, I got a friend on the phone, but she's 90 miles away. What's she going to do? But nonetheless, made her promise to stay on the phone with me, right? And so I, I start trying to figure out how am I going to handle this because my original plan of shooing it out the door, that's not really going to work with a bat. Because if you know anything about bats, they fly really erratically. And the reason for that is, you probably know, they don't fly by vision, they fly by sonar. They make this horrible, creepy noise and listen to the way it's bouncing off of things and fly accordingly. And I'm sure at any given moment, this bat's going to fly into my face. I'm going to have a heart attack and die. I'm in my final moments, people, and I'm freaking out. <laughs> this broom is not going to shoo it out the door. So I realized the broom cannot be a guiding tool anymore. It's going to have to become a weapon. 
But in the couple of seconds that it's taken me to devise this new plan, I had the worst thing that could have happened happen. I lost visual. Now, having a bat in your house, bad enough. Having it and not knowing where in your house it is, way worse. So I, I keep Sarah on the phone. I'm walking through. I'm, I'm poking things with the broom. I'm moving curtains. I'm, I'm just really expecting him to fly into my face any second and laughing at me as he does it. And, and, and eventually I find him. He's, he's behind this curtain. He's kind of balled up in the corner of the windowsill. Now, I can't take a good shot at him there. I'm going to shatter a window, right? I'm, I'm renting this place. So I got to get him out of there. So I, I cautiously kind of bump him, and I, I get him to, to fall out of the windowsill down onto the floor. And with every ounce of courage and strength I can muster, I take a swing at that bat like my life depended on it with this broom. And I slam it down and scream hysterically as I'm doing it. And I remove the, the broom, and he's not moving. And I, and I poke him, and he still doesn't move. And I thrust my arms up over my head like Rocky Balboa because I have beaten the mascot of hell. I am not going to lose to this stupid town. I will win this victory, right? I'm so proud of myself. So I'm telling Sarah what I've done, and I'm opening the front door and preparing to sweep him out. And I hear him thud in the bushes outside, and I slam the door so proud of myself and what I've accomplished until I heard it. The sound of bat sonar. Now, I can promise you the one I just hit with the broom wasn't making any noise. This was number two in my house. Now, it's been a horrible week. I was mentally exhausted from class and emotionally and physically exhausted and the fire for my sister and all this. And I'm pretty sure, guys, I don't have it in me for a round two. This was supposed to be a one-round knockout fight, game over, let's move on with our lives. And they didn't get that memo. What am I going to do? And so I, I hang up the phone with Sarah and I'm, I'm trying to quickly devise a plan, and, and then I figure it out. In fact, I can't believe I didn't think of it sooner. My plan's to go to bed. <laughs> because if I can just make it through the night, I thought the sun would come up and daylight would kill the bat. <laughs> now, I'm embarrassed to admit to you, as an educated woman, I genuinely believed that. <laughs> I blame Hollywood. But it's true, it's what I thought, and I'm kind of glad it's what I thought because it allowed me to get some sleep, you know? I grab Chap, I head into the bedroom, close the door, barricade it to make sure he can't get in there, try desperately to ignore that he's flitting around my house, and eventually exhaustion takes over and I pass out. And I sleep through the night. I didn't even get up to pee, that never happens. But when I woke up the next morning, my eyes pop open and instantly the flood of memories from the night before comes back to mind and I realize what I'm about to have to do after I pee. So I, I was at one bathroom in this house, so I have to leave the bedroom. I open the, the door and cautiously look around. I don't see anything. So I start heading for the one bathroom in the house, which by the way is flooded with sunlight this time of day. And so I'm like, I'm feeling extra safe, right? <laughs> extra safe about going into this room. And sure enough, I walk in the bathroom, and that bat is curled up in the tub. Now, thankfully, he's not curled up on the toilet. That would have been way worse. So I ignore him for a second, do what I went in there to do, literally put my big girl panties on and head for the broom. I'm going to get the broom and the dustpan. I'm going to dispose of him like I did the one last night. It's going to be fine. Well, okay, I'm not completely stupid, so I should probably poke him and make sure he's really dead, make sure sunlight's had enough time to do its work, right? 
I mean, he, he picked the wrong room to be in, but I better double check, you know? So I poke him. Well, much to my surprise, he's not dead. Y'all aren't surprised, but I was. <laughs> he's not dead. He's not even, like, not quite dead. He seems fine. So all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, he's going to fly in my face any second. I got to act fast. So I slam the broom down on him. But this time, I did not deliver a death blow. In fact, he starts screaming out in agony and rolling his head around and stretching out his wings. And then I noticed he's, he's smaller than the one last night. Yeah, I know. So I'm so conflicted right now. I'm terrified, but I don't, who wants to be known in their town as the baby bat killer, you know? So what do you do? You do what a good renter does, and you call the landlord. Why did I not call that man at 11.45 the night before? But I'm calling him now. And so I call the landlord, and he says, no problem, we'll be right over. And he and his wife come over. He deals with the one in the bathroom. I don't know how. I don't care. And he says, we should probably check the house for more. You know, I hadn't thought of that before that moment, and I'm thankful. But I'm like, yes, you should do that. I'll be right here. And so they do find a couple more, deeply disturbing, but they take care of those two. And then he says, now I'm going to seal everything off to make sure there's no chance of another one getting in your house. I like you. You're thorough. That's good. You're a good landlord. You know, and slowly I'm starting to feel like maybe, just maybe, I can still live here. So I get on with my life. I still feel like the event was, you know, a victory. It was a challenge I conquered. And, uh, and then a few days later, my landlord's wife calls because they've had pest control come out while I was at work that day, and she's calling to tell me what they found out. Now, what she tells me is they found roughly 75 more in the attic. <laughs> I know, it's disturbing, but here's the most disturbing part of the whole thing. They can't do anything about it. <clears throat> I'm sorry, could you say that again? Um, we can't do anything about it because it turns out bats are bordering extinction. To which I said, all evidence to the contrary, I got 75 just in my attic alone. <laughs> She's like, no, 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 we, it really is true. So that means two things. First of all, you're never allowed to kill them. Oops. Um, and you're not even allowed to mess with them if it's during mating season, which it was. Now, this is June. Guess when mating season's over? September. So the craziest part of the whole thing is not only did the bats not have to leave, I did. I had to pack a bag, grab chap, and leave the house, and I never did sleep there again. I had to find another house. I had to give it up to a bat brothel because that's how the law reads, right? <laughs> but I find another house. Not quite as old, not quite as cute, but not infested with bats. That's pretty much all I cared about at this point, right? So I move in again. I feel like it was a challenge, but I conquered it. I'm good. This town's not getting me. But as it turns out, the curse wasn't over because for the second time since accepting that job, my house was broken into. And after a while, it just starts to feel like you're walking around with a black cloud. In fact, my dear friend Alan, who's here tonight, asked me after that break-in, it just seems like ever since you took this job, you've kind of been cursed. I don't understand why you stay. And I had to think about it for a minute. It really was this theme, fight or flight, you know, what am I going to do? And I thought about it, and I thought, well, first of all, I always want the stubborn redhead to win. I want to always be willing to take on the challenge. But I also want to remember, I'm never taking on a challenge alone. 
that I'm a person of faith, and I believe with all that I have in me that there is always a good and gracious God walking me through every challenge I face so I can always be victorious. Thank you. Meredith McClendon is a former military chaplain and current wife and minister. You can find her on Twitter or Instagram at Marehead. If you've enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to join us for one of our live events. Our next one is going to be Friday, October 27th at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. Our theme for that event will be Spooked, True and Scary Stories. Now, this is easily one of our most favorite annual events. In fact, our first ARC Stories event ever held was a night of scary stories back in October of 2010. So we look forward to this one every year, and you are not going to want to miss it. In fact, we're actually still looking for some storytellers for that event. So if you have a true scary story, we would love to hear it. You can find out how to submit it to us for consideration, or just go ahead and get your tickets by visiting our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley, and you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places too, at Arc Stories. This podcast is produced by me and Arc Stories director Taylor Robinson. Preston Lovingood composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Audra Whaley, Betsy Lee, Aaron Moon, Leonard Lee Smith, Ryan Whaley, Jamie Golden, and Michael Howard for making this episode possible. If you like our show, please rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So with that in mind, I want to say a very special thank you to Ben Crocker for your recent review. You can leave your own just by going to arcstories.com slash apple. And while you're there, be sure to look around the rest of arcstories.com. You can listen to other stories, you can stay up to date with all of our events, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we're always asking, what's your story? <laughs>